Hello, and welcome to The Stakes. I'm Holly Anderson, MTV's Director of Politics and News. It's Friday, and today is our last day coming to you from our New York City studio. We're doing our best to bury the sustained psychic trauma of the Republican and Democratic conventions deep inside our souls, while also blocking out the 101 days of the election that are still to come. It's a delicate balance, but we are nothing if not graceful and talented aerialists. We have a great show for you today, and I swear to holy heaven above that we will spend most of it talking about things other than the election. That said, we do have some stories from the RNC and DNC that we want to share, and we're going to start our show with Anna Marie Cox and Jamie Fuller bringing us news from the convention floor. Our feature interview this week comes from Doreen St. Felix, who discusses the power of photography with Aperture Magazine guest editor Sarah Lewis. Plus, MTV's editorial director of music, Jessica Hopper, talks to poet and music writer Hanif Willis Adurakib about his new book of poetry, The Crown Ain't Worth Much. There are only so many ways to say that the world is bad now. And when we do that, people begin to long for another time. And I think a major function of my work is to remind people that the other time also was not that great. All of that coming your way this week on The Stakes. While at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia this week, our senior political correspondent, Anna Marie Cox, spoke with Sarah McBride, National Press Secretary for the Human Rights Campaign, who made history Thursday night by being the first openly transgender person to address a major party convention. Hi, Sarah. Hello. So you're the first transgender, openly transgender person to address a national political convention. I know you've talked about this all day long. Are you still excited? I'm very excited. It's such an honor, and I hope I do my community proud. What are you planning on talking about? I want to underscore really two important points. First, that there is a lot of work that still remains before we reach full equality for LGBTQ people, and that Hillary Clinton is the only champion who can deliver that change. And two, that behind this national dialogue on transgender rights and transgender issues are real people. And there is humanity behind this issue. Real people who hurt when they're mocked. Real people who hurt when they're discriminated against. And real people who just want to be treated with dignity and fairness. So I'm sure you saw or heard that the governor of South Carolina made a joke about bathrooms and a Donald Trump rally. You know, I think it's really a shame when someone's struggle for dignity uh, is mocked by anyone, including uh, a public figure. And I think this convention is going to stand in stark contrast to last week in Cleveland, which was just constant messages of negativity, hate, and division. This week, it's going to be messages of love, inclusion, and equality for all Americans. How did you feel about Donald Trump struggling, but somehow successfully getting through what I think he thought was a sandwich? LGBTQ? I think we are way past the point where merely saying the letters LGBTQ should be seen as progress and should be rewarded. He was standing up at a convention that endorsed the most anti-LGBTQ platform in their history. He's endorsed anti-LGBTQ policies and is named one of the most anti-LGBTQ figures in the country as his vice president. And so LGBTQ voters and equality voters know that Donald Trump and Mike Pence are enemies of equality. To people who think that maybe they shouldn't bother this year, that their options are bad, people who might have been supporting Bernie Sanders and just see this as two people who are a part of the same political machine, what do you have to say? As a transgender person, Hillary Clinton has had my back and my community's back for the last decade, decade and a half. And in this election, there is a stark and clear choice between a candidate of discrimination and hate and a candidate who's articulated a platform of love and inclusion. And for marginalized communities, whether it's LGBTQ people, immigrants, women, people of color, people with disabilities, the stakes could not be higher. It's life or death. It is life or death. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Anna Marie Cox speaking with Sarah McBride, National Press Secretary for the Human Rights Campaign, a national lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender civil rights organization. If you watched any of the convention coverage, maybe on TV or live on Twitter or on your mom's iPad, you might have noticed that the attendees skewed pretty senior at both conventions. Our politics writer Jamie Fuller tracked down two millennial delegates, one Democrat, one Republican, to explain why they each gave up a week of their summer for a stint in a musty convention center. 
First up is 23-year-old Republican alternate delegate Logan Nevinen, who came up from Texas to Cleveland last week to get on the Trump train. Or maybe not. When you guys were talking, uh, what would you say are the issues that popped up over and over again as the ones that young people uh, in the Republican Party care about most? We all seem to, to care about limited government and, you know, low taxes because we're just, you know, entering the workforce. And, you know, the, the messaging with that is like, you know, we would like to keep more of what we earn. So that was all that seemed to be a main concern for all of us. And, you know, our increasing like student loan debt that we're all, you know, leaving college with. So that seemed to be, you know, one of the, the key ideas that we discussed there. Um, one idea that we kind of saw a little bit differently than the, the GOP platform on the national scale is our, you know, we were the most uh, diverse generation in the Republican Party, millennials are, and, you know, we we have grown up with, you know, friends who um, who are gay and you know, we kind of see the issues with, with, with that and, like, how difficult it can be to, um, you know, be gay living in our society today. So we were, we seem to be more acceptable to that. Um, other than, you know, the national GOP platform being a little bit hostile about that, we saw that as an issue that we, you know, kind of didn't align with necessarily as, as much as older folks in the party. You, you, one, of, one of your big goals, you're saying, is uh, trying to get young people to care about the Republican Party. And uh, many of the issues you said you care about most are ones that didn't get any, like any play for the most part, uh, maybe very briefly at some points, um, during the primetime slots. And so when you're talking to young people you think might agree with you on the issues, uh, What's what's your sell, uh, or how, how do you try to convince them that this is the right party for them when on the national stage all the issues you say you're caring about aren't appearing as much? I the way I you know try to to attract young people and message my conservative values is in a positive way of how the Republican Party and conservative principles have empowered me as an individual to, um, you know, not have so many, you know, less, less restrictions over, you know, my life and, you know, having what lower taxes can do for me and, you know, like not having government being so controlling where it's like, especially with, with Obamacare is a, is an issue that I kind of recently have focused on and talked to other colleagues of mine that are a little bit older, you know, like ways of, you know, like how that kind of interference can not be so beneficial. Like it, it seems like it could be helpful, but it really is not if you're having to pay like, you know, higher fees. And I always message my conservative values to anyone in a positive way and um, making it more empowering to the individual. I do not like mudslinging politics. I, you can go on any of my social media sites. I will not say one bad thing about an opposing view of whoever, you know, and I'll maybe like list some facts, but I will never be disrespectful to any other party. So, and cause I don't think that's the way that I don't think that's appropriate. I don't think it's helpful. It, it's definitely disengaged a lot of millennials my age. So I try to keep a positive message and, um, you know, approach it that way. And has that been hard this year uh, with, well, you, you look at the national field and you have the two uh, least liked presidential candidates in history. Uh, you have no one trusts anyone in government. How how do you make young people your age think that's a good idea to care? That that part has been very difficult, actually. I tell, especially in the Republican Party with Donald Trump being the Republican nominee now, I I always tell everyone um, he is going to have to earn my vote in November because of all the hostile things that he has said and his policy issues are not very strong in my opinion could be like flip flops over but you know it doesn't that that matters in, in the grand scale of things but also the down ballot candidates that really affect your life that you, that you would see really great leaders from. Even in, in Texas, um, you know, some down-ballot candidates such as state representatives and, you know, 
uh, Representative Cindy Burkett and Representative Linda Coop. They're doing really great things in their communities, and I really I enjoy what they have to say about the Republican Party because they, they message everything very well. And what's next for you? What are you doing for the rest of the election cycle? Well, right now I, um, I work in politics, and I work at a political consulting firm, so just finishing up my work and the, the elected officials I work with here in Texas, I really believe that they're awesome leaders. So getting them elected and um, in some tough primaries is, is my main focus. And also, you know, encouraging um, people around my age to make sure that they vote. Well, thanks so much for taking the time, Logan. Yes, yes, thank you. We caught 21-year-old California Democratic superdelegate Naima Charles in the middle of it all this week in Philadelphia at the DNC. At the convention, would you say that there are more or uh, about as much as you'd expect people your age who are serving as delegates? Um, I think there. are hmm, how do you think about this? In terms of my age, there's not too many people there at, um, at the convention. I think there's definitely a lot more people there in their like 30s and of course um there's a majority of convention is people who are way older um but there's not too many people but me and my group of friends were all very politically active so i do have a group of people who i know that are uh, delegates there and what have you guys been doing so we've just been like visiting all the booths and talking to as many people as possible um we've been attending the dnc caucuses i checked out the youth caucus as well as the women's caucus um, and then we've also um, been just enjoying there's, um, our time here. There's been a lot of cool parties and events. And, of course, we love those as well. So it's been super informative, and we're getting to, like, have conversations um, on the PNC caucuses. But then we're also able to party and have fun. So it's been pretty, uh, pretty good. And I've also been doing um, – I've been interviewing as many people as I can because I'm also here with Ignite, which is an organization that works to get more women in politics. And so I've been trying to just talk to many people as possible to find out, you know, what we can do to get more women involved in politics. And as someone there who's talking about uh, the effort to get more women in politics, especially young women, uh, what was it like to watch the proceedings on Tuesday night? It was, uh, like, I'm getting emotional just talking about it, but, like, it was unbelievable, like, just seeing that moment, and I love Bernie Sanders, too, and I just thought it was so special, too, that he was the one who made the nomination and um, asked us to spend the rules, and it was phenomenal. It was just so inspiring, and all of my friends were crying, and it was, I will never forget that moment, mm-hmm. like, ever. And... As I'm, I'm sure you know all the data about getting young women in politics. Like it's historical yeah. that there's a woman who's running with a major party on the presidential ticket for the first time. But then you look down ticket, and there's mm-hmm. still only 20 percent of women in Congress. You look at state legislatures; there's about 25 percent of um, yes women making it up. Uh, what do you think is the solution to getting more people to run? Now that you've been talking to all a bunch of people about this issue. Yeah, so I actually attended um, a really good luncheon yesterday where there was a panel uh, focusing just on that. And what was really deter- uh, what was really kind of suggested, or I think they kind of found from this, is that women um, will run more. First, uh, women are more likely to run if they're asked. There was a study, and they introduced, uh, they had two, two different groups of women. One group of women was introduced as being qualified, and another woman was just being introduced as just, hi, this is so-and-so, they work here. And at the end, there was this, um, when, they were, when people were asked, like, who do they perceive to be more qualified, it was the women who were introduced that way. So I think we also need to make sure that we're speaking highly of all the women around us and that we're not taking that for, van- for advantage, because that, all, that study also shows that women are just assumed to not be qualified. So we have to assert that. And you're still really young, and I'm, I'm sure you're still yes. <laughs> uh, figuring out what you want to do next. But uh, is there anything about politics that excites you most that you really want to go into? Are you more into policy? Do you want to run for office? Like, what, what's grabbing you most right now? I definitely want to run for office, but um, I don't right at this moment, um, just not right now, what I really want to do after I finish this fellowship is I would love to work um, 
for a national women's rights org. Um, I love Planned Parenthood, NARAL, Emerge, um, anything that really empowers women in politics. Of course, I love Ignite as well. Um, and so that's really where I see myself uh, working and I'm finding a career in. I'm a woman in gender studies minor, so I really like looking at intersectional feminism and womanism and figuring out uh, how we can just be as inclusive as possible while still moving forward. And uh, as far as your experience has gone so far, is it something you'd want to do again? Yes, <laughs> this is this has been such an incredible and amazing experience. Um, I think maybe the uh, the media uh, may not be uh, maybe focusing a little bit more on um, the, the divisive politics, but this has been such a unified convention, and I've just left feeling. So inspired and so passionate about the election. I already was, but this definitely increased it a lot. Well, thanks so much for taking the time, Naima. And yeah, yeah, thank you so much for letting me be on. <laughs> this is awesome. That was Naima Charles, and before that, you heard Logan Nevinen, both party convention delegates and ambassadors for Ignite National, a not-for-profit dedicated to involving young women in the political process. Despite the death of print media, the summer edition of Aperture Magazine, a quarterly journal about photography, run by a nonprofit foundation, no less, is sold out. That might be because, for the first time in its 223 volumes, the magazine, founded by Ansel Adams in 1952, is devoted to photographic representation of African Americans. Staff writer Doreen St. Felix called up Sarah Lewis, a Harvard assistant professor and guest editor of the magazine, to talk about the intersection of photography and social justice. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Sarah Lewis. Um, So I know that you are on book leave right now, but when you are at Harvard University, you teach the history of art and architecture, African studies and African-American studies. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit um, about how you choose your course load in each of those disciplines. I know that they're very different, but obviously they have intersections. Yes, I'm thrilled to be an assistant professor in both departments, history of art and architecture and African African American studies. My focus is, is really giving the students, both graduate students and undergrads, a sense of the nexus of race, um, citizenship, and imagery from the origins of really the new world to the present day. This coming year, I'll teach three courses, uh, two seminars and one large lecture course. Um, The two seminars are titled Exhibiting Blackness, looking at the role of display in African-American culture, and the other is simply titled What is Black Art? (laughs) The lecture course is the same title that I've given to the issue of Aperture that I guest edited, um, Vision and Justice, Art, Race, and Citizenship. And that course, as it states, looks at the importance of art for citizenship, really in American culture, um, particularly as it relates to inclusivity um, and race. The course, Vision and Justice, will be complemented by an exhibition at the Harvard Art Museums, formerly Mm -hmm. called the Fog Museum, which opens at the end of August and runs through January. And I'm thrilled that the museum's sort of object mode of teaching can really complement the course. I think it's going to be really fascinating. Um, One of the assignments I'll offer is for the midterm, (laughs) for anyone student listening here, (laughs) is to to ask them to select one synoptic image that they would elect to really offer us a sense of where we are regarding race and social justice in this country. I'm curious, because of the way in which images are so easily disseminated now through social mm-hmm. media platforms um, to gauge from them where where their sources are for image making and imagery. The exhibition, of course, will have fantastic works in the collection from Gordon Parks to Carrie Mae Weems to um, Lorna Simpson. But of course, there are many photographers whose work historically is not in museum collections, like Radcliffe Roy or Devin Allen, um, whose work is being disseminated in different platforms. So I'm curious to see what images they elect. So those are the courses I'm teaching this coming year. So Aperture is a Mm -hmm. photography magazine, and this volume that you guest edited is called Vision and Justice. I was wondering, Mm -hmm. what 
do you think about the proliferation of images, you know, from protests that we see circulating on the internet via Twitter, via Instagram, that become viral? They're not necessarily what we would think, you know, fine art, fine black art photography is, but they are resonating in a, in a particular way. I was wondering about your opinion of them. I'm interested in the way in which the sort of viral nature of images of injustice are having impact or, or not in conversations that are leading to changes in, in policy in particular. Uh-huh. Um, I framed this, my interest in, in this it does bring me back to the origins of photography though and I think it's really important for those who aren't even art historians to understand this. The reason why, for example, Frederick Douglass, who I write about in the Vision Justice issue, was so intrigued by photography at a analogous moment of, of crisis in America during the mm-hmm. Civil War. He spoke about photography and the speech entitled Pictures in Progress and Life Pictures, was that he was interested not so much in the the look of a particular photograph or its, its ability to, through composition, offer us a sense of the world that we didn't see previously, but instead he was, he was, he anticipated what we now know, which is that images leave us with images in our own minds that mm-hmm. we then use to filter and to the world, and in which we use to read other human beings, other bodies, other races. And he called this phenomenon, really, the creation of what he called, quote, thought pictures, right? <laughs> the, the way in which these ideas or images linger in the mind. And so we're in an analogous moment, I think, in which we're seeing the proliferation of these images that lead to oftentimes fatal consequences. And mm-hmm. when you look at it in the context of um, police brutality or social injustice, the sort of snap decisions that you see people making about one another, where are we getting those from? Well, increasingly, as society is more and more um, segmented, living in increasingly like-minded communities, people vote like each other more and more uh-huh. in communities or the same religious backgrounds, et cetera pictures and media become the way in which we connect to worlds unlike our own. So we're now in a place where we understand, I think, why Douglas was so uh, intrigued by the responsibility of these pictures, right, when they're disseminated online and, and have gone viral. But we still haven't, we're still really living out the question about how the, the impact of these pictures that we see online from a Devin Allen photograph to a Rudy Roy image on, on Instagram or social media. Mm-hmm. We're still living out the question of how they can create what I think is always going to be the the singular gift, in a sense, of, of photography, which is to to decelerate us, to give us um, a moment of immersive concentration, of a kind of enduring attention to something that otherwise might not might just pass us by. Mm-hmm. You know? And so many moments in the civil rights movement, you know, were were galvanized by this sort of declarative force of a photograph, the Emmett, Emmett Till photographs, for example, is one, uh-huh. is one that comes to mind. And you could also ask how many people were moved by what they saw in Selma on their television screens that made them decide to actually sacrifice their time and their bodies to, to protest. There's so many images that have forced us to a place of productive stillness to really think through um, different moments of injustice. And that's, I think, really the offering that these virally disseminated images can give us um, more than anything else. Mm-hmm. So for me, my experience going through this issue of vision and justice, you really get a sense that in your editing, it was important to you to democratize the idea of photography across all the different iterations of black culture. So, you know, there's photography in there of Frederick Douglass, obviously, obviously, which is the conceptual inspiration to this issue. But then there's also photography of black celebrities. And I found that very, very interesting because um, it's thinking about, for instance, the death of Bill Jones, who was a photographer of primarily black celebrities. I was wondering how you see the intersection of photography that's more commercial, you know, paparazzi photos of black people versus the fine art photography that obviously uh, a magazine like Aperture is is going to be concerned with. Right. 
When you begin to have a conversation about race and photography, it becomes, I think, hard to uh, continue the the separation um, between how we teach about commercial photography versus fine art photography. Mm-hmm. And, and why is that? Because I think when you uh, understand the life of someone like a Bill Jones or, or even look at the photographs of an Annie Leibovitz, right, who's in the Vision and Justice yeah. issue, you see that they're still connected to the sort of foundational issue at the heart of the start of photography, which is how do you honor the fullness of humanity, you know? But the way in which that extends to contemporary conversation is that both in the the chemical composition of photogra- uh, photographs themselves, the way in which they privileged white uh-huh. color, yeah. you know, over others, to the way in which images of typically of white celebrities or white subjects were privileged, you know, you see the extension of this conversation. Bill Jones is a beloved photographer in large part because he was offering a, a corrective um, to that history by his insistent, exuberant celebration of black subjects. You know? mm-hmm. um, he was photographing at a time when you had to really fight on the on the line, quote unquote, you know, to on the red carpet to get the right position to photograph a certain celebrity, and oftentimes black. Celebrities weren't given the same uh, time and print coverage that others were. And if you look at actually images of, of Bill Jones, not simply in you know Jet or, or Ebony or Essence where they were published, but now online, you'll often see celebrities embracing him, hugging him, mm-hmm. um, oftentimes creating a portrait of Bill Jones himself because they understand the symbolism and the power of what he was doing. You know, and. So for the vision and justice issue, it felt important to include commercial photography, despite the surprise I knew it would elicit from some readers, um, because I understand that how intertwined that history is with the field, the history of photography in general. Mm-hmm. I had one personal experience that made me understand that a bit more deeply, and it was it was simply when um, I was profiled by Vogue years ago and had the honor of having Annie Leibovitz take my photograph. And I, in doing research on her work, realized how few other women of color, particularly with my skin color, mm-hmm. chocolate, brown, you know, had been in front of her lens, right? And given how conscious she, she is about putting her subjects in a historical continuum, um, oftentimes consciously having her subjects kind of mime the, the compositions of other historical figures to make that point, you know, it, it occurred to me that her work should not simply be seen as separate or divorced from this larger field, despite how it's taught. So I include the image Iman curated of these luminous, you know, black models in black dresses that was published in 2001 in Vanity Fair. Um, so, so Annie is in there, and and it's also to emphasize the point that the the work of really um, having photographs show the fullness of humanity has not only been done by black photographers, right? It has mm-hmm. been done um, by some women like her, but but the issue is predominantly African American photographers and scholars. Yeah, I would say that vision and justice kind of mimics the experience of photography as you've described it, really de-escalating, forcing you to just spend all your time on this issue. It's really wonderful. And you guest edited, as we mentioned earlier, and you are also the author of books, many books, (laughs) one of them being The Rise, Creativity, The Gift of Failure. And I know that you're actually working on a book right now. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the book that I know that you're currently working on. I'd be happy to. I guess I'm a little superstitious about saying too much before a manuscript is done. You can keep it vague. Um, but what I can say is that it's this is a project that's really looking at the the way in which photography um, began to be used in the 19th century and continues to be used to unravel fictions about race, racial categories. Well, we're looking forward to this book. Thank you. My pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. That was Doreen St. Felix in conversation with Harvard Assistant Professor 
author, and Aperture Guest Editor, Sarah Lewis. And speaking of sold-out print media, our own Editorial Director of Music, Jessica Hopper, spoke with MTV music critic and poet Hanif willis Abdurraqib about his debut book of poetry. Hanif, can I ask you to read on jukeboxes from your debut book, The Crown Ain't Worth Much, which just came out from Button Poetry this week? Absolutely. The ones on Sheridan Ave stopped playing Motown in the fall once the frat boys found out they could drink for cheap and stumble down the block loud and pulsating with the night the way our fathers used to when this side of town was still thick with their fingerprints. And so we take the cash we won over on the North Courts where Jason ain't missed a jump shot since his big brother got out of prison and started to slow dance with them corners again. And we go to the quick mart to buy some quarter water that don't quench anything except our desire to be black and young and spend the money we earned with our own sweat. And I think something about that is also black. And our parents ain't seen us since morning stretched over the hood and all these decaying rooftops, but we still hop in Tyler's mama's Ford and go down to Sheridan Ave to see the old head who sits outside Monk's Bar with a Newport forever swinging from his bottom lip so low it defy gravity. And for the right price, he'd been known to sing whatever Marvin Gaye song he's sober enough to remember. And so we take what change we got left and put it in his cup, and he starts in on some Marvin. And the words, brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying, crawl out from his lips and grow legs and a whole body right there on the sidewalk. And it wraps itself around us. And Jason is bent over and heaving. And I try not to look and tell myself that it's because we played eight games straight earlier. And summer came through the hood this year and decided to stay too long and wear out its welcome like Tyler's grandma in his family's two-bedroom apartment. But that's why he's been staying at my crib lately. And I think to tell my boys we should go back there before we run into midnight and the questions that come with it. And before I can say anything, some Capital University kids run up and take the old head's change cup and run away yelling, this side of town ain't for y'all anymore. And when I get accepted there in the winter, me and Jason stop talking. Thank you. So this is your first book and it sold out the first printing in what four days yeah it sold out pretty quickly um i mean i'm sure that some of that was due to like pre-order hype too but like when it yeah it got released on tuesday and then there was like a scramble to get more copies of it into the world on like saturday morning my press was like what are we gonna do um like amazon sold out the distributor sold out and now it's back in places um, for people who are listening to this and may want to buy it. It's it's like back in a lot of places. But the single bookstore uh, on the east side of Columbus where I grew up also sold out, and that made me feel better than anything. Given that you were so tied to Columbus, that your that your work is very much about Columbus and your roots in Columbus, uh, selling out your book in Columbus... How does that feel? That feels great. You know, I had a a friend of mine who I like grew up with, um, like send me a picture of my book in a bookstore, like on the block where we used to hang out. And I think um, I'm big on geography and place and the meanings of those things. And that that means a lot, I think. I, I never thought that this would be a thing, right? I thought that like, I thought that my book would, I thought that like my friends would like it and that's it. And then when it started to pick up a little more buzz, I thought, oh, cool. Well, like the poetry world will like it and that's it. Um, and it surpassed kind of both of those things and entered this weird space where it's like a poetry book that is being consumed and talked about and experienced in places where people normally don't talk about poetry books. And that's like really wild. It's not surprising to me that your book is 
crossing over to people who don't necessarily normally pay attention to poetry or the people who write it because the book is you know so much about place and history music music history yeah. uh it's about gentrification it's about uh protest it's about uh mourning and black life black death it's about uh you know a sense of of intimacy with people who are being pulled apart from each other whether that's through you know death uh through gentrification through incarceration through broader cultural forces that pull people apart pull people out of their neighborhoods pull people out of their families and and i feel like all of all of those there's so many ways so many points of access there's so many parts that are relatable understandable nuanced ways that we can get into your poems it doesn't surprise me at all that a lot of people are getting into your poems oh that's so kind thank you <laughs> i mean that's more of a comment than a question <laughs> but you know as someone who started writing poetry young and uh, and also as someone who obviously has been tethered to music and um, whose life has been rendered by a lot of these events and influences. Is that something you seek to do in, in your poetry? Like make it, make it human and make it accessible to people? I think so. And so I, I think a lot about um, how important it is for people to feel seen. I would not be a writer if not for Zora Neale Hurston writing in the type of vernacular she wrote in. Zora Neale Hurston was writing the way I spoke, and so I felt like I could write the way I, I spoke. And so I, I think about it on that level. But I also just have a lot of a lot of my touchstones historically are rooted in music and popular culture, right? I I can recount the song that was playing on the way to my mother's funeral. I can recount the song that was playing on my first day of college. And it's all tied to this larger narrative thread that I hope people can get an entry point into. But I'm also a little, I, I think with poetry, when it becomes accessible, people begin to think, at least in the like poetry world, in the like old white dude with, with like white hair and glasses poetry world, right? If, if the poetry is accessible, then the conversation becomes about um, craft and does this person know what they're doing? And so I want to walk a line in which my poetry has accessible entry points, but it's still very clear that like I know what I'm doing, right? I know how to craft a poem and I know how to make a poem work in the way that I want it to. It just so happens that, you know, a a fourteen year old kid might like it the same way that a sixty year old college professor might like it. You know, and, and this is to say that, like, yeah, my fan base or quote unquote fan base of people who like my poems is, is like odd and far reaching because it is very much the people who are like in the ivory towers and also like, you know, teenagers, legitimate teenagers. I, I did a book release in New York last week and there were like legitimate, like, you know, 20 year olds, 18, 19 year olds. Um, as well as like actual teens, actual teens. So, yeah. so what you're saying is that you are the Nick Jonas of contemporary, <laughs> contemporary black, black poetry. poetry. I'm Nick Jonas. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's no shirtless billboard of me yet, but I imagine it's coming soon. Next week. Next week. I mean, at this rate. Finally. You, you know what you're talking about. You know, and and also just as someone who's edited your writing a bit in the last few years, you do have such an amazing ability to recall memory that is tied to music um and you know i've always imagined that maybe this is in part because you had a, you know a traumatic teenagerhood and that you know a lot of your your memories of that time seem to be rafted on music even a older piece that you wrote about 9-11 that you remembered like the the handful of CDs that you bought in the following mm. weeks. Yeah. What, why do you think, why do you think that is? 
So my earliest ways to escape were musical in that, I mean, I didn't grow up in a household with a lot of money, but my parents had records uh, and a record player that worked most days. Um, And my dad had instruments around the house and my brother could play drums and there was a flute or a trumpet. And so all of the escapes that I used were kind of rooted in this building a window out of music or imagining um, music as as something to escape into. And and so what that does for me even now is it makes music something that is larger than it actually is, right? And so um, any criticism I get about the romanticism in my poems, how how or or in my like long form writing, even how these like small mundane things like a concert may someone might say, well, it's not that serious, right? It's just music. But I, I, I but believe, but it's never just music. It's, it's never, never just, just music, music, right? Yeah. If it was just music, we wouldn't give a shit like how we do. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like I, I can't, I can't approach music without also thinking about how I was really sad and messed up as a teenager and found that um like rap music just like commercial pop rap music in the summer of my mother's death right was a like that was when mace was at his peak and like bad boy and the family were at their peak that without that i wouldn't have survived that summer without that shiny suit rap that everyone mocks and makes fun of now that opened up a different world to me that made me feel like there were these black people on TV having the time of their lives, and I was in the middle of the country very sad. And it gave me an access point, an escape point, to imagine a world different than the one I was in. And so in my work, I try to recreate those access points for people. I read uh, in a piece that you wrote on the uh, sort of eve of, of the release of your book about how part of your process when when you're writing some of these poems was to sometimes write while sort of half viewing or having having pulled up on your computer live streams from protests and to me it was really interesting yeah. that your creative process is related to something that's happening absolutely immediately in the now because i think of your work is so suffused with with memory and also the past. What's the relationship between those two things? How does that work with with memory and with writing to to be bearing witness at the same time as mm-hmm. pulling something out of yourself, out of your mind and heart? What does that do for you? So I think it's it's like map building or world building, right? I think it's it's very much um, finding connections to the past and linking them to the present time. The title poem specifically, which is like a very long seven-page thing I wrote while watching the Baltimore Uprisings. And it's notable because that is when I decided to tie together all of the themes in the book into one thing, into one last poem. I'm trying to um, write about nostalgia and write about the memory while still knocking on the knocking on the table and telling people, but don't don't worry, this stuff is still going on, mm-hmm. right? I think that um, as someone who writes about the past and talks about the past a lot, it's easy for people to kind of wax poetic about oh things were so bad back then or things were so good back then or things were so romantic back then, and so I, I it is deeply important for me to kind of shake the table and say, well back then yes, but also right now. Right, I think um, there are only so many ways to say that the world is awful, right? And there are only so many ways to say that the world is bad now. And when we do that, people begin to long for another time. And I think a major function of my work is to remind people that the other time also was not that great for a whole host of people. But I, I think that's a function of any historian, especially someone who is doing work in a poetic field. How do you feel when you are writing? Terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's not true. Uh, Not always, at least. Um, What always excited me about poetry and what excites me about writing long prose or whatever is that there's just, and this is like mad corny and I hate saying it out loud, but there's like 
an outrageous amount of language that I have access to, and I'm only always using a fraction of it. And so for me, writing is like a, a different type of discovery, especially because it's not like I'm a, you know, I didn't like go to grad school. I didn't, I don't have like an MFA, um, at least not yet. And so for me, I, I come to writing as an opportunity to learn a new thing or a different thing. Um, and so oftentimes I feel great. I mean, writing, the process of writing this book was really agonizing in a lot of ways because, you know, for a long time, it didn't feel like a real thing that, that I could pull off. Is, is part of your reaction, is part of how you operate in the world? When shit's going down, do you do you go to poetry? Do you, do you go to writing? Um, I think it depends on what the shit that is going down is. So a couple, a few weeks ago, with um, when there was the, the the Alton Sterling and Philando Castile shootings, kind of back to back, I did not want to write anything. Right, I wanted to talk to my friends. You know, I wanted to call the people who were still here with us and hear their voices and just see how they were doing as people. I think um, the one thing that happens when you are known for writing a thing is that people sometimes turn to you and ask you to produce that thing at times that are inappropriate for you to, you know what I mean? And I mean, I'm, I'm talking poetry, right? Like in poetry, um, you know, so poetry editors will be like, a poetry editor might be like, well, why don't you write a poem about this? And I think for someone who is like black and struggling or any any member of any marginalized group who is watching a level of violence or even anyone who is um, down with people who are in marginalized groups and watching these levels of violence, I think sometimes it's impossible to write a poem That was Jessica Hopper, editorial director of music here at MTV, and Hanif willis Abdurakib. Hanif's first book, The Crown Ain't Worth Much, published by Button Poetry, is available wherever fine books are sold. It is our official editorial position that you should buy the shit out of it. We'll close out, as we like to do, with another favorite poet on staff, MTV political writer Marcus Ellsworth, who this week explores how what America is changes depending on where you stand. Somewhere someone sits in a room painting tiny soldiers, carefully placing each one on battlefields dotted with cotton ball cannon smoke. As they patiently add stripes and stars to a war-torn flag, they think of this as America's finest hour, the blood and beauty of a country being born. Somewhere, someone stands on a college campus handing out flyers for a rally, saying to each passerby that now is the time to take a stand. They dream of tearing the blindfold from the eyes of justice. They believe this is what makes America people rising up in a revolution of ideas and action. A parent worries that two jobs won't pay for a home and a future. A pastor prays that their faith will survive social progress. A worker blames another worker for coming from another country. A person fears that failure to meet gender norms will be deadly. A fiancé weeps at the memory of a cop killing their love. A cop feels their badge is a heavy target over their heart. Each believes that this is America. America is great. As in, America is vast, a behemoth drinking in two oceans and carrying millions upon its back. A few stand at its head, cheering it as a place of prosperity and opportunity. Many sit along its spine, watching it move and work to keep it moving without knowing where it will go. Just as many fall beneath its feet to be crushed but survive and climb out from its shadow, few have walked it from tail to crown, and some see all of its terror and glory at once. Each believes that this is America. And they are not wrong. And they are not right. America is what each of us sees and knows. America is teeth-scraping stone. America is a loving hand wiping away tears. America is a barren desert. America is fertile valleys and snowy mountains. America is hot concrete and cold steel. America is hope and hate wrapped in an impossible embrace. 
The America you know depends on which angles you are allowed to see. This country, like all countries, is an illusion. Words set in ink to be self-evident are refracted through the prism of reality to define a land and the lives in motion across it. And from sea to shining sea, the people see what they see, both by choice and circumstance, so we rarely agree what America is and what it needs to be. Take a step to the left or to the right and watch it change shape in ways that defy reason and break your heart. The greatest, most perilous gift of America is that we can alter its form for the good of many, for the benefit of a few, or the end of us all. The ways we vote or don't, the ways we protest or police, the names we say and the faces we forget have always determined the fate of this country. Someone before you saw an angle of America and drew the lines that you see. Now you get to decide what America will be. That was Marcus Ellsworth, and this has been The Stakes. We'll be back next Friday on our regular schedule, and I won't be here to hear it. I'm going the fuck on vacation. My intrepid deputy editor, Julie Ross, will be filling in, in addition to doing most of my job for me. She likes champagne, if you're buying. Before we say goodbye this week, I want to give a special thanks to the entire politics and podcasting team that has been responsible for the last two weeks of programming. We did 10 shows in two weeks, including nightly dispatches from both conventions without missing a regular episode. We are quite mad. Julianne Ross, Jamie Fuller, Jane Koston, Erica Futterman, Alex Papanibas, Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich have been keeping this contraption afloat night after night, many of them working truly ridiculous hours to bring you our special coverage from Cleveland and Philadelphia. In addition to this, our regular, all-original, stakes classic, Extra Gold. To all of them, thank you. Sincerely, I love you. To all of you, thanks for riding this dragon with us. I'll see you on the other side of a long, long pilgrimage through the desert. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts and subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.